This is the first Sunday in spring, and I'm so glad it didn't snow three inches like they said it would. The weathermen keep their record intact. And this is also Palm Sunday. Jesus was celebrated on this day 2,000 years ago, I believe in preparation for what was to come. And what was to come was a cross, a torture device used by the Romans for 800 years. For 800 years, the Romans could find absolutely nothing better for torture than crucifixion. And to send a message to the world, you don't mess with Rome. They wanted the world to see what happened to those who defied them. They wanted not just death and torture, but humiliation. People on a cross were naked. They urinated and defecated on themselves because they had no other choice. That little loincloth you see in those pictures and paintings simply wasn't there. And the torture? It was exquisite if you liked that kind of thing. Nails through the ankles with the entire length of one's body resting not on that little plank of wood you see in pictures, but that they were driven through the ankle bones sideways into the wood. And then all of the weight of the person rested on the nails driven into the wood. Then they drove nails through the wrists. People, when the Romans wanted, could be kept alive for as long as 30 days on a cross. They knew what they were doing. If they wanted you to die quick, you, die, you did. If they wanted you to suffer for a long time, they knew how to do that too. So I want to read from Matthew chapter 27, verses 38, what Jesus endured for us. Two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. In the same way the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him, for he said, I am the Son of God. In the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lima sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those who were standing heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with the wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died there were raised to life. Isn't that interesting? When Jesus died, a whole bunch of people came out of the grave. Ultimately, when people died on a cross, they died either from thirst and dehydration if the crucifixion last from, lasted for more than three days, or they died from asphyxiation, the inability to breathe. Because see, on a cross, they stretched you out in such a way you had to raise yourself on those nails in your ankles. You had to raise yourself to take a breath that your, so your diaphragm could work. And usually people died on a cross simply because they got too weak to breathe. Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem. 
the place where what I just described was waiting for him. What's interesting is the last week of Jesus' life was very ordinary. Jesus could have used the spectacular. What a stage, you know, here at the Feast of Passover in Jerusalem. He could have healed and delivered like he had done for three years up to that point. But the last week of his life, Jesus limits his miracles to one. He put back the ear on a Roman soldier after Peter cut it off, protecting him. What Peter found out is that God doesn't need our protection. And in this political season and all this stuff that's going on around here, let us remember, God doesn't need our protection. When they mocked him, Jesus could have rendered his enemies mute. He didn't. When they spat on him, he could have opened the heavens on them. He didn't. When they surrounded him with soldiers, he could have called a legion of angels. He refused. No angel stayed the hand of the man who beat Jesus back into a bloody pulp with a cat of nine tails with hunks of lead in it. It reminds me of the story of a Marine who lost an arm in battle. An officer tried to, confront the, um, to, to comfort this Marine for his loss, but the Marine would have none of it. He told the officer, I did not lose my arm, I gave it. That was Jesus' attitude. You are not taking my life from me. I give it freely. But the worst was to come. There on the cross, Jesus, Jesus, Paul tells us, became our sin. And when that happened, he cried, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For the first time ever, the Trinity was not in perfect union. For the first time, The Son could not sense the Father. For the first time, God felt God forsaken. Jesus felt alone in the universe. He felt abandoned. It's what our sin does to us, isn't it? It isolates us. It numbs us to the presence of God. It takes us into darkness where we cannot see. I believe with all my heart that the Father did not turn His back on His Son that day on the cross. I believe the Spirit and the Father were right there, brokenhearted and in anguish. But Jesus could not feel them. He could not sense them. He could not see them. When darkness, our darkness, when sin, our sin engulfed and swallowed him up, Jesus could not see who was with him there all along. Isn't that true for all of us? Our sin blocked Jesus from experiencing the presence of God. In a real sense, Jesus experienced hell on that cross. And that's what really killed him. It stunned his Roman executioners. Jesus wasn't supposed to die that fast. They they knew how fast somebody was supposed to die. They were experts. Jesus should have lasted longer. Obviously, Jesus died from physical causes to a degree. But what finished him was him entering into hell. Our hell. And becoming one with it. He became our sin. Jesus died from a broken heart. Far more than from a broken body. On that cross, Jesus saved us. Not by eliminating hell. But by entering it. And overcoming it. And giving us the power to overcome it too. I want to tell you a story today. I want to tell you my story. 
Through the years, I have given bits and pieces of my story, but I never could bring myself to tell it all. One of the reasons was I was afraid I couldn't get through it. Another was I was afraid because telling this story makes me feel very vulnerable. Another reason is I didn't and I don't want people's pity. And besides that, I thought just the telling of it is a downer. Why should people come to church and listen to this? What I'm going to tell you today, I've only told two people in my life. My wife and my sister who lived through it with me. It is the story of my childhood. It is the full story. Let me start with this. My mother married a man who, before she got to the wedding, realized she didn't love him and she shouldn't marry him. She'd realized she had made a terrible mistake. My mom went to her parents to ask what to do, and she was told, your word is your bond. If she had committed to marry my father, she needed to go through with it. It was kind of embarrassing to back out of it. They guilt-tripped her into the mistake of her life. After that, my mother had me and my sister Linda one year apart. But she did not celebrate the arrival of her children. She saw us as chains that kept her attached to my father. We were part of the trap she felt she was in. She might be able to leave my father at some point, but she couldn't leave him and two babies. What would people think? That was in the early 1950s. You don't do that kind of thing. And my mother was very socially conscious. It was more important to look good than to be good. And so my mother, to be frank about it, resented I and my sister's existence. My mother simply did not love us. And when we were old enough to go to school, we became, in essence, indentured servants more than her children. Even at ages six and seven and eight, we were expected to wash the dishes, mop the floors, vacuum the house, make the bed, clean our rooms, mow the yard, clean the toilet, clean the bathroom, sweep the porch. And we never did it well enough to suit her. We were perpetually told what a bad job we did, and we were perpetually told how lazy we were. She was perpetually angry at us, at times flying into a rage after she examined our work and cursing us, and worse. And I do not have time this morning to go into the worse. I've already told you how when I was five and six and seven years old as a little boy, I would get up at 5 or 5.30 in the morning and clean the house without being asked, hoping that that day it would help my mother not to be angry at us. Hoping that if I did it enough, and I did this for years, hoping that if I did it enough, she would love us. Even now, I ache for that little boy back then. I wish somehow I could get in a time machine and go back and say, look, it's awful now, but it's going to get better. To this day, I still cannot watch Cinderella, Disney's Cinderella. Because when I watch Cinderella and how she was treated in that movie, it hits far too close to home. But what I'm telling you was not the worst of it. The worst of it was the total absence of love in our lives. 
If a metaphor for God's love is like an Amazonian rainforest with all its lushness and life, then I and my sister grew up on the moon. No life, no air to breathe. In the first 18 years of our lives, neither I nor my sister once heard the words, I love you. Not once were we ever thanked for anything we ever did. Not once were we complimented for any efforts on anything. I, even in elementary school, was a straight-A student. In high school, I, I was captain of the football team. I even helped form a golf team down in the sticks of Virginia. I was inducted into the National Honor Society. In my senior year, I was voted best personality. Uh, and I want to tell you something. Anybody questions that? I, I will punch anybody out that questions how pleasant I am. And uh, by, by the way, that, that's called dark humor. And it's absolutely necessary to survive things like that. You show me any comedian, and I'll show you a person that went through hell. My sister, you know, she accomplished much of the same. My senior year, I was one of the co-captains of the football team, and she was head cheerleader. And we never heard one positive word about it. We tried so hard, and it just didn't matter. My mother and father never once read us a bedtime story, and there was a total absence of touch in our lives from our mother. At least my father would roughhouse with me, you know, and he and I shared a love of sports. He, he played catch and played football with me, and he totally supported all my sports endeavors when he wasn't drunk and carousing. My dad is a narcissist and an alcoholic, and he has done terrible things which I can't even begin to mention. And the sad part of it to me is that he was the good parent. Not once in 18 years do I or my sister ever remember our mother holding us or letting us on her lap. Not once in the first 18 years of our life did she ever hug us. Not once did she kiss us. Not once did we ever get a friendly pat on the back. Neither of us ever. And in some ways, the saddest part of this is that my mother was a public health nurse. She was well-known and beloved in Pulaski County, Virginia, and in Radford. She took care of thousands of people in her lifetime. If you mention my mother's name down there, they think you're talking about a saint. I remember when she retired, there was a huge banquet and testimonial after testimonial. And I and my sister were sitting there going, who is this person? And here's the hard part, too. Although my mother took care of thousands of people in her life, yet when my sister and I got sick, my mother never stayed home once to take care of us. We got the flu and the measles and the chicken pox and the mumps and all those childhood diseases. Sometimes we got severe bronchitis. I was susceptible to bronchitis, and sometimes my fever would shoot up to 104. And even at 6 and 8 and 10 years of age, we were left at home alone to fend for ourselves. Let me ask you, could you imagine for a moment leaving an 
year-old sick child at home with a 104-degree fever to tend to themselves? Would you do that? My father had the shop below, and he would occasionally come up every couple hours to see if we were still alive. To be fair, sometimes when we were, re were really sick, my mother would, would uh, inject us with penicillin before she would go to work. She shot me so often with penicillin to this day, I am allergic to penicillin and all penicillin-based antibiotics. I don't know how to say this, so I'm just going to say it. We grew up in hell. Every hell's different, but my sister and I knew we were in hell. And by the way, to, even to this day, I have a special bond with my sister. And it's not just being brother and sister. We are close because we went through hell together, and nobody understood what we went through except each other. And we knew we couldn't tell anybody. Nobody would believe us. My sister tried to talk to a first cousin who's a committed Christian. And uh, when my sister said, started to sh share just even a little bit of this, my cousin shut her up and she said, why are you lying, you know, about a woman as wonderful as your mother? My sister and I were alone together and we knew it. But believe it or not, Jesus used our childhood to save us. You see, the total absence of love created this incredible vacuum, this incredible void in our hearts. Our childhood created an insatiable need for love from somebody. An infinite hunger for infinite love was created in us. And that in turn drove us into the arms of Jesus Christ. The cross shows us that Jesus can use anything. I'm here to bear testimony to that. All things work to the good of those who love God. All things. Jesus did not cause our childhood. He would have changed it if allowed, but he was not allowed. But the vast emptiness in my heart drove me into the arms of Jesus. Jesus knew what was going to happen to me. He knew I was going to numb that kind of pain with alcohol and drugs and workaholism, which is a Dalton and an Epperson family tradition. He knew I would destroy myself trying not to feel pain. He knew that only infinite need could be met by infinite love. When Jesus showed me grace, I was drawn to it the way a moth is drawn to the flame. I craved and needed the love of God the way a man dying of thirst needs water. The love of God is not just my way to heaven. It's my spiritual survival kit here. To me, it is not some nice academic philosophy or some neat theology. The love of God is the air I breathe. It is the bread I eat. It is the cup I drink. I'm almost 63 now. And I've been a Christian for 44 years, coming in June. And I still have the same insatiable thirst that I had 44 years ago. And I am still as amazed by Christ's love now as the day I discovered it, or may, more accurately, it discovered me. When you've had my childhood, you never take love for granted. 
You never get over it when it finally comes into your life. You value it more than most because the deprivation of love to the degree we had is something you never forget. I am so grateful for the love of Jesus Christ. I just can't get over it. I told my wife, when I die, and uh, I, I, you know, I don't know if she can do this because I'm hoping to outlast her. Uh, <laughs> dark humor, dark humor. I told her I want three hymns sung at my funeral. I want Amazing Grace. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. The second hymn I want sung is, ask, And can it be, and can it be that I should gain? Amazing love, uh, how can it be? And the third hymn I want sung at my funeral is, Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. Let me read you a couple of verses of this. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus, vast, unmeasured, boundless, free, rolling as a mighty ocean in its fullness over me. Underneath me, all around me, is the current of thy love, leading onward, leading homeward to thy glorious rest above. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus, love of every love the best. Tis an ocean full of blessing. Tis a haven giving rest. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. Tis a heaven of heavens to me. And now it lifts me up to glory. For it lifts me up to thee. Praise the Lord. You know why I picked those songs? Because all three writers of those songs are stunned by the love of Jesus. They are stunned by its breadth and its width and its depth and its beauty. And they are stunned that it found them, just like I am. My childhood now, because of Jesus Christ, has become a terrible gift. But in God's hands, a gift nevertheless. The cross tells us God can redeem anything and everything. At the cross, Jesus took our sin and our lostness and our pain, and he made it the way to heaven. At the cross, the greatest injustice ever perpetrated on the most innocent person that ever lived hung on a torture device, and he turned that device into the way of salvation. If God can use a cross, he can use anything in your life. I bear testimony. Even my childhood, Jesus knew. You know, one day I was reading about what I read here when he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know, my God, why have you abandoned me? And it hit me. Jesus knows what it's like to be an abandoned kid. He knows. He entered my hell to save me. And guess what? Jesus still comes into our hells. I want to tell you a parable. I did it for a Christmas sermon, but it fits a crucifixion sermon so much better. A man died. He had not lived a good life. Therefore, he found himself in hell. His friends, concerned about his sad, though well-deserved fate, went down to hell and, moved by the man's misery, rattled the iron gates, calling out to whoever might be listening, Let him out! Let him out! But the pleas accomplished nothing. The great iron doors remained locked. 
Distinguished dignitaries were summoned, powerful people, academics, intellectuals, prominent personalities. All of them stood at the gates and put forth various reasons why the man should be led out of the place of lonely torment. Some said that due process had not been followed. Others appealed to the jailer's sense of compassion, but the great iron gates refused to move. In desperation, the man's pastor was summoned. That's when you know you're really desperate. Call the preacher. The pastor came down to the gates. And he said, look, he wasn't such a bad guy. He contributed to the building fund. And he helped feed at the soup kitchen twice. Let him out. Still the gates of hell stood fast. And then after all the friends and well-wishers finally departed in dejection, the man's aged mother appeared at the gates of hell. And she stood there stooped and weak, only able to whisper softly in maternal love. And this is what she said. If you cannot let my son out, would you please let me in? And immediately the great gates of hell swung open and the condemned man was free. That is what Jesus did for us on the cross. This is how Jesus saves us. He comes and finds us in our hells. You know, we want prevention, but Jesus prefers redemption. We want God to eliminate the pain in our lives. Instead, Jesus chooses to enter the pain and heal it from the inside out and transform us. God can redeem anything. I stand testimony. You know, I never, ever, ever thought I would say this. But if I could go back and have a different past at this point, I don't think I would. Because of my past, I love Jesus all the more. Because of my past, I am clinging desperately to Jesus. Because of my past, I revel in the grace of God. It's not just a nice thing, it's my life. Jesus uses brokenness. He visits us in hell in order to get, it out, get us out of it and make us ready for heaven. God can redeem anything. He can redeem anything. You know, I, uh, I'm li- I feel like the old black spiritual. Remember that? I wouldn't take nothing for my journey now. I wouldn't. And please hear me, I'm not minimizing the pain. I still have scars from living in hell. You know, children, and, and, and especially shame. Children of dysfunctional families almost always blame themselves for the dysfunction. Did you know that? My sister and I always felt, if our own mother can't love us, there must be something really, really wrong with us. Even now when I mess up, especially on a Sunday morning, there still is a voice that kind of rises up that says, maybe my mother was right. And then the accuser takes that and he clubs me with it, especially on Sunday nights. But I'm here to tell you the devil is a liar. I'm here to tell you there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Not an ounce of it, not a bit of it. If God is for us, who can be against us? But I know I will have certain scars to the day I die. 
And I know I will have to fight certain battles over and over again. Now, God is teaching me to win those battles more and more and more with guilt and shame, especially with shame. But I know till the day I die, I'll fight those battles. Doesn't mean I'm going to lose them, but I'm going to have to fight them. I might as well expect them. God can redeem anything. And I tell this story because some of you are in hell today. Or you grew up in hell and you still bear the wounds from it, and you're still bleeding, I'm here to tell you that Jesus specializes in meeting people in hell and breaking them out from the inside out. He turns terrible into gift. By the way, I need to say this. I have forgiven my mother, and more importantly, Jesus has forgiven my mother. In my late teens, Jesus saved my mom, and he changed her. She was a wonderful grandmother to our children. She adored them. She doted on them. The person I talked about earlier is someone my children never knew, praise the Lord. She would let our kids get away with murder. One time she stopped me from yelling at our kids from something they were as guilty as sin over. And I turned around and I looked at her and I said, Who are you? You're not the person who raised me. If I'd have done that, you'd have killed me. And she said, That's right. One day I will see my mom at the greatest family reunion ever. And I imagine she'll say, I am so sorry. And we'll embrace. And you know why? Not only did Jesus visit me in my hell and save me, he visited her in her hell and saved her too. And I can imagine on that day I will quote something said 4,000 years ago by a man in Genesis a man who had a terrible family himself, a man who was betrayed and abandoned by his brothers. And on that day, Joseph, when he was forgiving his brothers, he said these words, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. By the way, I was really struggling with whether to preach this sermon. But the thoughts and the words kept coming back and back and back to me. And I knew it was the Spirit saying, you've got to preach this. And I said, well, but I have such mixed feelings about preaching this. And, and, and I said, would you give me a little sign? And so about halfway through this sermon, as I was writing it, I looked at the calendar. Kim has a family calendar. In the she puts down all the anniversaries and all the dates of special things that have happened. And I noticed that today is the seventh anniversary of my mother's death. And I knew I was supposed to preach this. Seven years ago today, God took my mother to heaven and I will see her again. And he said, use the story. Tell the story. You know, this is what the, Christ, the cross means. Christ experienced hell to save us and he still shows up there all the time. Christ was broken to heal us for by his stripes we are healed. Christ will go to any length to have any one of us. That's redemption. You know what redemption is? It's taking something and turning it that is bad and turning it into something good. That's the message of the cross. He takes terrible and turns it into gift. That is redemption. And I hope all of you, broken, messy, hurting, screwed up people out there, can sense Christ coming to you 
with nothing but love in his heart and nothing but grace in his hands. I want you to know it's okay to share your story. Find somebody you can trust who has Christ's heart and share your story if you've never shared it. And I'm not saying you have to do it like this. Only an idiot would stand in front of 400 people and say it. Because one of the hallmarks of dysfunctional families and organizations is that there is an unwritten code of secrecy. No one should know what went on here or goes on here. It's a system designed to protect the guilty so it can keep on going on. And I want you to know there are secrets to the left of you and secrets to the right of you. I want you to know there's hell still in this room. But as the recovery movement states over and over again, you are only as sick as your secrets. You see, secrets grow best in the dark. That's what gives them their power. Germs and bacteria and secrets want the dark. And so I decided not to take this secret to the grave with me when it would do someone some good in the hands of Jesus. It took me 44 years to get around to it. <laughs> this is the first time I've ever told this story in public, and I suspect it may be the last time I ever tell this story in public. And sometimes, you know, I, there's even moments now, I, as I tell you, I just feel really stupid. But I hope that you know if you are broken, you are welcome here. I hope you know that if you're struggling with an addiction, you are welcome here. I want you to know that if you've been in hell or are still in hell, Jesus will come and visit you and we will open our arms to you. If you are screwed up, welcome to the kingdom of God. You know, one woman said something who recently started coming to our church, and she told me, she said, I don't like your preaching. I mean, of course, that's crazy. But <laughs> and she told me, you know, I don't like your worship. I, and I, so I said, I said, why do you come here? And she said, because yours is the only church I know where I can come here and fall apart. And nobody thinks anything of it. Yours, I come to church because you can be a mess here. I come to church because you can be broken and cry and know that other broken people are on the same journey and they understand. I can think of nothing more that is a higher compliment to G from about a church. I can think of nothing more that would please Jesus to describe a church. And so I welcome you to the messy Harrisburg Brethren in Christ Church with their Crazy pastor. Don't, don't applaud crazy pastor. <laughs> Actually, sometimes people go to me, you're crazy, and I go, you don't know the half. <laughs> I, you're just seeing the tip of the iceberg. I, I'm holding nine, back 90% of the crazy. <laughs> don't mess with a crazy person. <laughs> Let me tell you something. We play so many games in church. We come to church and look nice and smell nice and put on plastic smiles and tell everybody everything's all right. That is not real church. Church should be more like a 12-step program. We're broken people 
go on a journey of grace together. And it's okay to be broken. And it's okay to hurt. And it's okay to struggle. But we are going to do it together in the grace and the love of Jesus Christ. I ha- I, I got to stop. I'd like the ushers, to, the servers to come forward. We're going we're gonna to take communion. We'll do it up front. But I want you, you know, we, I read these words all the time. I want you to hear these words again that invite you to the Lord's Supper. We now invite you to come to this table, not because you must, but because you may. Come to testify, not that you are perfect, but that you sincerely love our Lord Jesus Christ and desire to be his true disciple. Come, not because you're strong, but because you're weak. Not because you have any claim on heaven's rewards, but because in your frailty, you stand in constant need of heaven's mercy and help. Are you frail enough to get mercy? Now that the supper of the Lord is spread before you, lift up your minds and hearts above all fears and cares. Let this bread and this cup be to you the witness of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit. Let's do our responsive readings together. The night when Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, blessed it, broke it, and gave to his disciples. We follow his example. Brothers and sisters, this bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? Take and eat this bread, remembering that he was born to be our Savior. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. Feed on him in your heart. Feed on him in your heart and be thankful. The night when Jesus was betrayed, he also took the cup, blessed it, and gave it to his disciples. We do likewise. Brothers and sisters, this cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the blood of Christ? We're not Catholic. It's the communion of the blood. Yes, okay. Take this cup, remembering that he said, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it together. The communion is open to anyone who is seeking grace this morning through Jesus Christ. You do not have to be a member of the Brethren in Christ or this denomination. You may come. You can be a mess, but if you know you need Jesus and you want that, you can come. But before we take this communion, I want us to take one moment in preparation for it. Would you bow your heads? Lord Jesus, forgive us. Forgive us for underestimating your grace again and again and again. Forgive us for our sins in which we hurt ourselves and hurt others and hurt you. Lord Help us to bring our wounds to you this morning. Let us experience through the Spirit your love. Pour it on us now, Lord. Throw us in the ocean, all around us, all above us, all underneath. May we see and feel and sense the power of your love now. Help us, Lord. Ravish us with grace. Amen.